and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. I'm Scott Miller, and I am honored to serve as your host and moderator each week. We are entering the season of just shy of 200 episodes, nearly four years of Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast, both audio and video on every possible podcast station platform channel in the world. It is the world's largest fastest growing leadership podcast. We have had the privilege to interview some of the biggest names, biggest influencers in uh, business and industry, and today is no different. Now, in the first year or so of our podcast, we were able to interview some great names out of the gate. And HarperCollins Leadership, the publishing house, approached me about writing a book about some of the key insights that I learned from our first 30 plus interviews. And now this book, Master Mentors, is available for pre-order on all the major EE and um, physical retailers, Master Mentors, 30 transformative insights from our greatest minds. What I did was wrote a very, very fast, easy to read, breezy book where I highlight 30 of our first guests and one transformational insight from each of them. And it's now together in this new number one new release book from Amazon. Pick up a copy of Master Mentors. There will be several volumes released over the coming years. Hope you'll become a fan of the book based on the podcast. Now our guest today is the famed leadership consultant, expert, author, speaker, guide, coach, friend, Eddie Turner. He's authored a book called 140 Simple Messages to Guide Emerging Leaders. Joining us from his office in Houston, Texas, Eddie, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, thank you for having me and congratulations on your new book. I love the title and congratulations on the anniversary of your show. Hey, thank you. And I look forward to approaching you about you being one of the future master mentors in volume three or volume four. It depends, of course, on how insightful you are today, right? So do your best <laughs> on that. I'm kidding, my friend. Eddie, I have followed you on social media for years. You are informally um, a, a strong leadership voice on LinkedIn. You influence thousands of people through your own coaching, your public speaking, keynoting, and consulting as well. I watched you launch this book about three and a half, four years ago. I fell in love with all the followers and all the book signings. I read the book, and this is one of those nugget books, right? The book really is a series of 140 standalone thoughts, messages, um, inspirational motivations for us as leaders. Now, you say it's for emerging leaders, but, you know, from a guy who, you know, had a career in the C-suite, I found many of these things uh, not just memorable, but, gosh, I need to revisit that. I need to do more of that. Talk a bit about why you wrote the book. Well, thank you for saying what you found valuable there, uh, Scott, because, yes, I wrote it with the initial thought that I've learned a lot in my career. How can I pass that on to others so that they can learn those lessons sooner than it took me? And so it was originally the idea of an emerging leader being someone early on in their career. But as I did my research, I started to expand the lens of what it means to be an emerging leader. And that's one of the things that's uh, detailed in the appendix of the book. Eddie, I think one of the things I find most uh, notable about you is your abundance. You know, our, our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, the author of the seminal book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that book has sold 40 million copies. He talks about having an abundance mentality. It's a mindset that becomes a skill set, as opposed to having a scarce mindset. I follow you on all the social platforms. You and I are both members of Marshall Goldsmith's MG100, you long before me, right? And I watch you, and I watch you shine your spotlight, your metaphorical stage on countless people. 
You are not a grandstander. You are a servant leader. You are an abundant person. Who taught you that concept? Those lessons come from early in my life, from my grandparents, my parents, and a lot of it with my religious upbringing. And there's an illustration that I'll never forget. Someone once said that when your fist is closed, you can't receive very much. But when you open your hand, you can. So as you give, your hand is then open to receive. And so it was instilled in me very early on that there's more happiness in giving than there is in receiving. So nicely said. I think another one of the points I admire most about you is how, how deliberately, how intentionally, how carefully you manage your brand. And when I say that is, you know, look at you right now. We are, you know, hopefully post-pandemic. In some states and countries, it's very much kind of mid-pandemic. But I'm going to guess you don't have a pair of shorts and flip-flops on. Don't show me. But my point is, you always show up. I mean, you always look like a million bucks. Now, maybe like me, you're a bit old school. I mean, I wear cufflinks to mow the lawn, right? It's kind of, I was taught as, you know, kind of a, a gentleman on the East Coast to, you know, always present myself well. But if you look on your social media, if you look on your speeches, you always take great care and intention on your brand. Not just how you look, but the words you use, your generosity, your, 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 your uh, demeanor. This is part of your brand. And in many cases, it's a bit lost, is it not? Why, why do you still choose in the middle of the summer on a hot Houston day to show up to a podcast dressed like this? Well, Scott, as you say, it's about the brand. And I like the words of uh, seven-time Emmy Award winner Sean Duperon. Sean says, who you are anywhere is who you are everywhere. And so to me, it's important that I am not manufacturing who I am, that I am consistently presenting who I am everywhere because that's who I am anywhere. And that matters to a person who's an entrepreneur. It matters to an emerging leader. It matters to your senior business leader because people need to know what to expect and it aligns with the person's authenticity and their credibility. I believe that to be true. Eddie, I want to spend our time today in the next 20 or so minutes doing a bit of a, an entire speed round. Your book is titled 140 Simple Messages to Guide Emerging Leaders. There's a little bit of a connection to Twitter. Your book launched about three and a half, four years ago. Since then, Twitter has kind of updated their policy. But talk, talk to the point of why 140? Well, you're precisely right. At the time, it was the 140 character limitation that Twitter had. They expanded it to 280 by the time I was finishing the book. So a couple of the messages I made a little longer. And at the time, I was actually writing for the Forbes column, and I answered a lot of Q&A uh, posts that they had. And they limited us to about 400 uh, characters. And so I found that in those posts, 70, 80,000 people were reading them. And so it taught me the power of just something short yeah. and succinct. Yeah. And that is what led to me saying 140 for the book, easy to read, easy to digest. Eddie, you've had a long and illustrious corporate career and many household names and leadership roles on many of the most admired companies, which has informed many of these messages. And then some of them are credited properly from famous thought leaders, generals, and business unit leaders. I'm going to skip around a bit. I'm going to pitch you one of the messages. I'm going to ask you to kind of land it or riff on it, however short or long you'd like. Number 22 reminds me of something I learned from, interestingly enough, the head of the Ugandan Football League. is a man named Stone Kinbody. 
And Dr. Covey highlighted him in the Seven Habits book as a transition figure. Stone, who was his first name, was quoted as saying, sometimes a disappointment turns into an appointment. And that, mm. that, that concept changed my life in terms of my expectations. And on number 22, you share some very similar advice. You say, sometimes you have to expect the worst and accept the best. It's advice to avoid disappointment. Was there a time in your life where you had to expect the worst and accept the best? And when you did that, what happened? Well, this is an interesting exercise because it tests my knowledge of my own book. <laughs> I remember the very person who said that to me. And it was said to me at a time where I was disappointed. I was disappointed because I had high expectations of others. And in some cases, I was expecting them to perform in a way that I thought was the best way. And so the individual who gave me that advice, uh, big brotherly advice, if you will, uh, he said that to me to change my perspective about what I was going through at the time. And it's a, it's a very powerful technique that we talk about in coaching, about reframing. And so once I was able to reframe it based on those words, my outlook changed and I found myself a lot less disappointed in the future. I'm gonna keep going. Number 27, you write, there is a difference between your vocation and your avocation. One is your job, the other is your hobby. There is great joy when your avocation can be your vocation. Absolutely true. What advice though, would you give to those millions of people who are watching and listening where their avocation is not their vocation? Their job is merely a job. It's a, a job that is perhaps a, um, a means to an end that their avocation is something different, but they, maybe they love gardening, but they're, you know, they're a data processor or a scientist. What advice would you give people to find joy or meaning in their vocation when it is clearly not their avocation? I wrote that because I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate. My parents never had a career. They had jobs. I have never had a job. I have always done what I love, be it my first career in information technology or what I'm doing now in leadership development. And so for those who have only had jobs like my parents had, where you are laboring in a, in a, in a vocation, is there another passion that you can continue to pursue that one day an entrepreneurial spirit is unleashed yeah. and that avocation, that hobby, be it photography, be it gardening or whatever, can become your vocation, become your business. My dad was able to accomplish that much later in his life, even though that was not the case early on. The adage isn't an indictment on those countless number of well-intended, hardworking professionals whose vocation will perhaps never become their avocation. I want you sort of to give permission to validate those of us whose careers from maybe eight to six, whatever our time is, the nine to five colloquial statement, is just fine to separate your Absolutely. From your Absolutely. My, my, my mom, my grandfather, people who they worked really hard. And that is what made my life different. And so that's one of the lessons I talk about as well. Finding value in a hard day's work. An honorable day's work is always a good day's work. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but sometimes are there opportunities to do other things? And that was kind of the, the, the just behind that. But absolutely 
hard work, honorable work, and in any level of a profession that we're working in is good. Eddie, let's go to number 35. Uh, I, I've written several books like you. I authored, authored a book called Management Mess to Leadership Success about three years ago. And recently, a large global company hired me to be one of their leadership uh, uh, experts and speakers. They bought the book for several thousand employees, and they then wanted me to give a, a keynote speech on the connections between leadership and AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Eddie, I could barely spell AI six months ago, let alone speak to it or the connections to leadership. I knew nothing about AI. So I went out out of a kind of a, a the necessity to, you know, please the client, and I interviewed multiple. Um, MIT graduates. I called up my friend Seth Godin, and in his car, Seth Godin coached me on what is AI and how does it connect to leadership and when does it break down. And I interviewed literally six or eight experts. And I went and I crushed it for the client. I hope so. I think the client is pleased. And, and I'll tell you, had it not been for the client moving me outside my comfort zone, I probably would never have learned about AI and the connections to leadership. Now, I'm no expert on AI. But it was the client forcing me to move outside of my comfort zone that's made me more relevant as a leadership author, coach, and speaker. What advice would you give to people about how to move outside their comfort zone? Your, your thought on 35 reads, are you watching the trends of your profession? When is the last time you studied the data for your industry? Technology is the great disruptor. Are you keeping up? What are some ideas you would give people on how to proactively keep up in their profession? First of all, I love your story and how cool is it to be able to call Seth Golden and get coached personally to get ready for a client engagement. So kudos to you. My advice to anyone is, that really was the foundation of that is, when we get complacent, we just go on with our affairs and the mundane things that happen in business. But if we watch the data, as it's being released, we can see trend lines. Well, we watch the financial trend lines, the financial data sometimes, but we may not watch what's happening and how business is developing. Mm -hmm. And in technology, where I spent my first career, I watched companies come and go, come and go. And if we were looking at data, we can start to maybe foretell where things are gonna go and then get ahead of it. Yeah. So be it if you are, needing to retool or reskill because something new is going to come, getting ahead of it to learn it in advance. Whereas I saw some leaders, instead of learn something new, fight against it, only to later on lose the fight and it take over. And we've seen uh, industries uh, such as Uber come, create a whole new mo business model. What did that do to the taxi industry? What has that done to the concept of what it means to be a 1099 employee or temp employee inside of organizations? Uber has become a verb, not just in the car industry, but a, in, in terms of employees, the employee experience and how companies staff themselves. So by looking at data, looking at trends in our own industry and others, it allows leaders to uh, not be so myopic and, ex and expand their lens so that they are not disintermediated as business leaders, as organizations. You know, Eddie, I think one of the things that I learned from my experience with this client on AI and also rereading your book and the time that I've spent with you is that I now need to be looking for what are the other AI topics that clients are gonna be interested in? 
outside of just my own expertise around marketing and leadership development, to the extent I have any on those, and how am I going to proactively start researching those now so I'm not scrambling when a client comes to me and says, hey, do you know about this or that? Now, I can't be all things to all people, nor will I try, but it has motivated me, and your quote has reminded me that I should be on the lookout to make sure I know what's on the horizon and what pressing issues in organizations might be connected to leadership skills so that I can be fluent in both of those or all those languages. Thank you for the gift and that number. Um, let me move to number 47. A mutual friend of both of ours is Liz Wiseman, of course, you know, a member of Marshall Goldsmith's MG100. Liz, of course, the author of the book, Multipliers, my favorite leadership book of all time. Liz, of course, has been on this podcast and we license her content for Franklin Covey's All Access Pass. In Liz's book, Multipliers, the premise, of course, is, is that we are all both multiplying and accidentally diminishing others at the same time. And our job is to build our self-awareness to minimize the moments when we are diminishing, accidentally, hopefully, and to create more multiplying moments. And Liz talks about both in her book and on our podcast and webinars that something happens to us as leaders. When we recruit and hire people, we think they are really smart. And then sometime in our minds, we decide they're not as smart as we thought they are, when in fact they are. Our job as a leader is not to be the genius in the room, but rather to be the genius maker of others. And your number 47 really builds nicely to that. You say, early in our careers, it's easy to think we know everything and others are not as sharp as us. Resist that thinking. Great leaders understand they don't know what they don't know. And therefore, keep an open mind and keep learning. Now, this is advice not just for early careers. I would argue that this advice is perhaps better for the more seasoned you are in your career, where you think you are the smartest person in the room. You are the genius. What advice specifically would you give to the more seasoned leader, mid-senior executive level leader, who has fallen subconsciously into the mindset that they are the smartest person in the room, and for whatever reason, they may accidentally or sometimes intentionally treat their people as less smart than them. It's been said, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. That means you're not growing, you're not developing. And so great leaders know it's important to surround themselves with people that are smarter than they are. And by mere fact that we are living in the knowledge economy, in many cases, it's harder to be the smartest person in the room. But I liken it to what happens on, in athletics. We've all seen the great athlete leave their high school and they go off to college. Well, they were the best in high school, but it's a whole new dynamic when they enter college because they took the number ones from all the high schools. And now it's harder to get that playing time. And that's how it is with the corporate athlete. With the corporate athlete, maybe you are the top at your organization or in the circle that you may be in. But as you continue to grow your career, you want to continue to challenge yourself so you can compete against the other great athletes out there. So never get complacent, always test yourself. And when I say you don't know what you don't know, that comes from my study of knowledge management, where as we continue to expose ourselves to new thinking, we are always amazed by what we didn't know and how we thought we were at a certain level, but now we're able to take it higher. Like all corporate cultures, Franklin Covey, of course, has a rich language, right? Acronyms and phrases at Franklin Covey, we call that being unconsciously incompetent. And that isn't a diminishment. It's just, you know, on lots of topics, I am unconsciously incompetent. I don't know 
what I don't know on lots of topics, for the record. Um, yeah. Uh, Eddie, in many cases, your book is more than a leadership book. It's a parenting book. It's a marriage book. It's a relationship book. It's a guide for how to be a great person book. I love number 62. You write, great leaders know it's best not to judge others. For one, we rarely have all the facts. Also in time, we might find ourselves guilty of the same thing we are condemning others for. No one likes a hypocrite. Be slow about judging. You know, not to get political, but I hate the cancel culture. I absolutely detest people who get on social media and kick others down who, you know, whose own lives, mistakes, messes, and challenges have not been exposed like perhaps this other person's lives have. And I also believe that when the world walks out, a friend walks in. What have you learned when you found yourself maybe in the same scenario of judging someone and realizing, you know what, I mean, I am a hypocrite right now. What advice would you give all of us to maybe be a little more generous, a little more um, quick, on, less quick on the trigger? Well, my grandmother used to say, just keep living. When you're judging others, she mm. said, you'll, you'll, you'll start to see the longer you live, uh, why something is a certain way, why they behave the way they, they do. And one of the ways I'm living that now is uh, I'm a new dad. And my wife and I, we said, we're going to follow certain rules. We're going to do it this way, going to do it that way. And shame on all these parents that do X, Y, Z. One of them was maybe uh, let an infant uh, have the television on. So we had no television on. And then all of a sudden one day, my wife had to leave. And she left me with our six-month-old daughter. And I, nothing I did was working, Scott. And so I bailed. I turned on the television and she be, she went silent. <laughs> she was mesmerized. So all of a sudden, all the things I was judging other parents for, uh, it, it it went out the window. And I thought, wow, cartoons are cool. <laughs> I love that. I have I have thoroughly loved watching the journey of uh, your marriage and your wife's delivery of your new daughter and such. Uh, if you're not following Eddie Turner on LinkedIn or on social media, you have to connect with him because he is one of those, one of those transition figures that Dr. Covey would call a light, not a judge, a model, not a critic. Dr. Covey, if he knew you personally, would be a big fan. Eddie, that's a couple more, and I know your time is tight today. Um, uh, one of our mutual friends is also Whitney Johnson, right? She is, of course, the author of the book, Build an A-Team and Disrupt Yourself. I've learned so much from Whitney Johnson. She is one of the master mentors in the new book. And she talk, talks all about self-disruption and being agile and nimble and recognizing when perhaps you're getting bored, consciously, subconsciously, in your job. In number 96, Eddie, you write about most of the jobs of the future um, do not exist yet. When they come online, they will, in many cases, eliminate the need for many of today's jobs, help others prepare by developing new capacity now. And of course, that speaks to your abundance mindset. What I'd like you to do is pivot for a moment and put aside others for just a moment. What advice would you give every leader, every individual producer, everyone listening to this podcast and watching you on what they can do to pivot, to build new skills, to disrupt? You got a lot of people in America that were, you know, harmed in some cases irreparably by the damage of the pandemic and of the recession. That is, you know, in many cases unspeakable in terms of the damage it's done to their, their industries, their careers, their finances. Any uplifting advice, practical advice you would give 
on how people can retool their skills for perhaps a new career that they can't even see or know about right now. I've done that in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, number one, I was a big Windows guy in my first IT profession. I only use Windows computers, but I started to notice that the Macintosh or Mac computers by Apple were making uh, inroads in and I was really against them. But I took the time to say, I'm gonna just invest in learning about the Apple world, develop the competency to where I said I became bilingual. I could uh, work on both sides. I applied that when I decided that I wanna go take my career in a different direction and went into leadership, doing the work I'm doing now. So I would ask all leaders and entrepreneurs to look and see what is it that they are passionate about? Or what is it that they could do to develop and equip themselves for skills of, of the future? And to do, there are university programs, it, continuing education programs. I set aside a certain percentage every year of my income to invest in new mm. learning experiences. Mm -hmm. We do it for vacation, but why not do it to invest in our education? Yeah. I'm sorry, we do it for vacations. Why not do it for education? Right. So I pick a university program to attend uh, where I'm gonna learn a new competency. I pick a new technology to learn. And so for each leader, they have to decide what that means for them. But can you say that you are better six months uh, later than you were before? Yeah. And can you point to it tangibly and what does it produce for you? Eddie, I like you. You're just a likable person. You're, you're how you show up, how you show up for others, your abundance, your smile, your generosity, your breadth of knowledge. Who's been the biggest influence in your life on how you became who you are now for others? I would say my mom is the biggest influence, but throughout the book, obviously I talk about how I've had a myriad of, of, of mentors using even the, your book title there, uh, because at each stage, someone invested in me and poured themselves in me to take me to the next level. And so it's a series of people, but foundationally, I think it started at home, it starts with parents, parents are the mirror for who we will become for the future. In fact, mentoring is one of the numbers uh, that you mentioned in your 140. I'm gonna end with this. I, I could pick a dozen more, and I encourage people to pick up a copy of the book. Such a great book to sit down with your team. I right? have each person perhaps, you know, think of something each week, 140 days, 140 weeks. It's a great resource for so many people, regardless of your role, parenting, friend, colleague, entrepreneur, committee member, this book will really challenge a lot of the common knowledge, but to quote, I think it was Voltaire, common knowledge isn't always common practice, right? Uh, let's talk about number 108. 108, and you're welcome for me feeding them to you. I don't expect you to have memorized all, all the numbers <laughs> as well, right? Um, um, Eddie, speak to 108, will you? No, here's 108. Confidentiality is important. The higher you go in your career, the more you will handle sensitive information, violations, ruin relationships, reputations, careers, and organizations. That's a quote from Alicia Turner. I remember the color of the chair I was sitting in, in my Chicago office, when I was the managing director of Franklin Covey's business in Chicago. This was 18 years ago. When my then president, Bill Bennett, walked in to me and said, Scott, quote, you are standing at a gas station and you are holding a match, end quote. And he was referring 
to the fact that he could not trust me as a new member of his leadership team to hold confidential information. Now, this was before I was an executive officer. I think I improved dramatically. But quite frankly, I was a gossiper. And I liked the fact that I was in the know and others weren't. And I, you know, would, would send smoke signals. And quite frankly, I was the loose, weak link in his organization. We are still very good friends. He became the best man at my wedding, and, and he still is a dear friend of mine. But there's so much truth in this, not just in organizations, but in friendships and in marriages, right? Don't confess your spouse's sins. Let's send our listeners and viewers off reinforcing the value of being a lockbox, that you are trusted to be and keep confidential information confidential. Talk to the point of why that is so vital. People need to know that they can trust in their leader. And at times they need to reveal parts of themselves that they might prefer to keep hidden. When they do, and they take us into that sacred space, they have to know it stays. I had a coaching client say to me, Eddie, I'm gonna tell you things I can't tell my husband. And that, that was so sobering for me to hear that. So as a coach, as an executive leader, I create a safe space for my clients. But at any level, in, in all the relationships that we have, when people talk, other people know that you talk. But when they know that you're a lockbox, they will come to you, they will pour out themselves to you, and you will get a reputation as that person who can be trusted. And it surfaces in other areas because it really says something about who we are as a person, says something about our character and our core values. Eddie, remind me your daughter's name. April. April, like the month. Yes. April has no idea how fortunate she is to have you and her mom as her parents. Man, she's going to be the beneficiary of a whole life of knowledge from the two of you. Eddie, as we end our time, what's next for you? What are you focused on? What are you passionate about? What is your avocation? My avocation is leadership. So all things leadership. My Keep Leading podcast keeps me busy. I have uh, a couple books in the works, uh, but uh, coaching leaders, helping leaders get to the next level is my avocation and my vocation. Eddie Turner, the author, speaker, coach, consultant, and um, uh, all around great person. 140 messages to guide emerging leaders. I think when you reprint it, it just needs to take off the word emerging and write leaders because it's a gift to anybody in a leadership role. Eddie Turner, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. If you're not subscribing to On Leadership, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. And we'd love to have you uh, evangelize our podcast to all of your colleagues in your personal and professional life. And we'll see you back here next week for a new On Leadership conversation. Mm -hmm.